Hello, K409. We are going to do a podcast now on environmental physiology. Now, that it's a broad topic, and for the purposes of our class, we focus primarily on thermoregulation and altitude in terms of environmental stressors. So let's start with thermoregulation. And one of the things I think it's important to always begin with is Keep in mind your body temperature is always this balance between heat gain that comes primarily from metabolism, but can also come from the outside environment, and heat loss by the body. So heat gain can be due to uh, metabolism. Again, all the reactions in your body, the majority of them are exothermic. They produce heat as a byproduct. That's going to create uh, a body temperature. And then depending on the difference between your body temperature and the environment and some other conditions, you could either gain heat from the environment or lose heat to the environment. Now, if you're going to lose heat to the environment, uh, mechanically and energetically speaking, there are four factors. And, and these are things that are in the actual physics, physical definition of, uh, of heat loss. So one of them is going to be conduction. Conduction is heat transfer due to physical contact with a solid. There's convection, which is heat transfer due to the movement of a fluid past the body. And in most cases, that fluid is going to be air, but it also can be water. Uh, three is radiation, and that is heat transfer due to the uh, electromagnetic property of heat waves. So you can gain radiation from the sun you can actually lose heat via uh, radiation uh, from your body out to the environment on a particularly a cold, uh, a cold weather situation. And then lastly is evaporation, and that is heat transfer due to the energy required to uh, physically change uh, water from the phase of water to a gas, from a liquid to a gas. Uh, you can only lose heat through evaporation. You can gain heat through the other three mechanisms and lose heat, uh, but you can only lose heat through evaporation. Now, at rest, the majority of the heat that you lose is actually lost through radiation. During exercise, it's different. In most normal cases, you will lose the majority of your heat during exercise as evaporation. Now, the problem with evaporation is that the air has to be able to absorb the water vapor. And the higher the humidity is, the less effective evaporation becomes as a cooling mechanism. And so in that case, if humidity is very high, let's say it was 100% humidity, as an example, then the majority of your heat loss would be due to convection. But in most normal cases, evaporation is going to be your biggest one uh, during exercise. Now, there are some other unique situations where it's going to affect heat loss. For example, if the air temperature happens to be greater than your body temperature. So let's say you're where I grew up in Las Vegas in the summertime. It's 110 degrees outside. That's actually warmer than your body temperature. So you would actually be gaining heat from the environment uh, in that situation. Again, as we mentioned, when the humidity is very high, that reduces your ability to dump heat uh, via evaporation. You can think of things like uh, exercise in air versus water. That has to do with the unique aspects of the specific heat of air 
in the specific heat of water. If you remember specific heat, that has to do with uh, the heat transfer and absorbing capabilities of a substance. Well, it's much harder to heat water than it is to heat air. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, when you're in a, a cold pool, you've, you're uncomfortable. When you're in a cold room, you feel fine. Uh, what about, there are certain sports that are unique because the competitive nature and the velocity of the sport itself leads to a factor in heat loss. So for example, with downhill skiing or cycling or speed skating events like that, you're actually moving through the air so fast through the competitive nature of the event that you accelerate convective heat loss. Um, but in general, keep in mind that unless the environmental conditions are extreme, the biggest thing that's going to control body temperature is this gradient between your skin temperature and the environment. Uh, the greater that gradient is, the easier it is for you to dump heat. So as an example, for athletes who do uh, long endurance events like a marathon, uh, they actually want it to be fairly cool. They want it to be around 50 degrees, give or take a, a few degrees. And that's because you think about the metabolic heat production that takes place when you're exercising running a marathon. Well, that temperature difference of an environmental temperature of about 50 degrees Fahrenheit that usually ends up being the optimal gradient where you don't have to rely on evaporation as much. That helps you defend your plasma volume, and that's a good thing. All right, now how do we measure body temperature? Uh, the, the standard measure is going to be what we call core temperature. The most accurate gold standard way to measure it is to measure rectal temperature, but it can also be measured as esophageal temperature. We have these little uh, very thin thermistors that we put up your nose and have you swallow it. It goes down your esophagus and we put it at the level of your heart. Uh, you can also measure tympanic membrane temperature, those new guns that you put up to your forehead uh, to measure temperature. Those are, are less accurate. And the newest technology we have, which is really catching on, are these ingestible wireless thermistors. And they actually, once they're in your gut, it takes them a while to move through. Uh, your intestines, and they wirelessly transmit your temperature to a reader. Uh, Non-invasive, it's very easily tolerated uh, by the subject. Uh, how do you control your body temperature? So your body controls temperature uh, starting with what, what I kind of call the thermostat of the body, which is the hypothalamus in your brain. That's where all the afferent information comes to the brain and says, hey, listen, here's how we're doing. So it's your thermostat, and then it's going to send signals out to the body to regulate your temperature. And uh, the hypothalamus, the mechanisms it, it can use, there are four of them. Uh, one of them is you can uh, vasodilate. You can uh, open up your blood vessels, particularly in the, the skin and the extremities, and that's going to make it easier for you to lose heat via convection. You can also vasoconstrict that pulls the blood in towards uh, the, more towards the core. And that's going to defend um, uh, and minimize heat loss due to convection. So that's one. You can also sweat. And by sweating, again, that's utilizing evaporation as a cooling tool to regulate your temperature. Uh, the, you can also shiver, and shiver is a, um, an uncontrolled, uh, it's not consciously controlled, it's an unconscious mechanism of muscle activation, 
And by activating those muscles, they create heat, and that helps the body warm up. And then the last one is there are also hormonal mechanisms that can control temperature. Uh, the primary one that people mostly focus on is thyroid hormone, which can regulate your body temperature to a degree. Now, those are physiological mechanisms, but keep in mind, we also have what are called behavioral mechanisms or behavioral adjustments that can influence temperature. For example, if you're cold, you don't sit there and wait till you start shivering or vasoconstrict so much, uh, your hands get numb and your toes get numb. Usually you're going to do things like, I'm going to move around, or I'm going to put a jacket on, or I'm going to go inside out of the cold, or I'm going to build a fire. Same thing the opposite when it's warm weather. You don't just sit there and wait and vasodilate and sweat until you go into heat stroke. You're going to do things to try to cool off from a behavioral standpoint. All right, what are some ne negative physiological effects of exercise in the heat? Um, there are, are many. Certainly one of them is that your core temperature at any uh, given workload is going to be higher. And that's a problem because there are certain enzymes in your body which only operate within a very narrow temperature range. Enzymes are controlled, are, are basically proteins, and proteins have a certain shape. And as a protein heats up, it actually affects the bonds of the protein and it causes the shape of the protein to, to what we call denature or change shape. And as enzymes change shape, many of them become either less effective or not effective at all in doing their job. And when you disrupt enzymatic function, as a result, you can end up negatively affecting exercise performance. So that core temperature uh, change is one. Uh, the next one is you're going to have significant plasma volume loss due to sweat. That is going to affect cardiac function, and that is going to be definitely a major negative physiological effect. Uh, the next thing is you're going to vasodilate and send uh, significantly more blood flow to the skin than in a cool environment. Um, that may help regulate your body temperature, but it means less blood flow is available to go to the exercising muscles, and that's going to be a problem in terms of exercise performance. You're also going to see higher lactate levels uh, at any given workload. You're going to see faster glycogen use rate, number of different things that are negative towards exercise performance. Um, let's see here. So at the end of the day, if these things are bad about exercising the heat, is there anything you can do about it? And the answer is yes, you can undergo a process called heat acclimatization. And that's uh, where over time there's a gradual improvement in the body's ability to dump heat, to eliminate excess heat from the body. So there are a number of different positive adaptations that occur with heat acclimatization. One is that your plasma volume is going to expand significantly. Even with just about three days of exercise in the heat, you can see plasma volume expand by as much as 20%, which is a huge uh, change. And that is definitely good from the standpoint of you're storing more water, to have more water available for sweating to cool you off. And it also gives you a, a way to defend your stroke volume um, because as you start exercising and sweat, that positive volume will go down. So we're just starting with a more full tank. Another one is you're actually going to start sweating earlier in exercise. And why is that a good thing? Well, one is it helps mitigate the rise in core temperature. But the combination of this earlier sweating 
and having more plasma volume, it means you can rely more on sweating as a mechanism to stay cool and have to rely less on vasodilation and sending blood flow to the skin. And if we do that, it means we can defend that blood flow to the exercising muscle, and that's actually a good thing. Uh, some other positive adaptations, your sweat is more dilute, so that preserves your body's mineral stores. Uh, your muscle glycogen use rate is actually going to decline by about 50 to 60%, uh, which that's a good thing. You're going to attenuate that rise in core temperature. That's a good thing. And you're going to see your heart rate reduced at any workload. And that's positive because your heart rate can only increase so much. There's a maximal rate. And so anything we can do to reduce it is going to defend cardiac function, and that's a good thing. All right, if you're going to heat acclimatize, how do you do it? So the first thing is to know that heat acclimatization in general only occurs with exercise. So just sitting in a hot environment like a sauna or a hot tub or, you know, turning up the heat in your house at night to try to heat acclimatize, really it's not going to work. You have to exercise to get heat acclimatization. There's some data that's looking at, at uses of things like sauna and passive heating on something called heat shock proteins. The data currently suggests that primarily those are only effective if you use them in combination with exercise, but using them independently still is not as effective as exercising to get heat acclimatization. Uh, now, if you're going to heat acclimatize, how does it work? How do you do it? Well, the good thing is, is that about 80% of the heat acclimatization response is complete in about five to six days. 80% in five to six days. That's a good thing. And even if you want complete acclimatization, it's usually complete by about 10 days. So it's a fairly quick process uh, to adapt. Uh, the acclimatization response is temperature and humidity specific. So it has to do with the heat load. Basically what you're trying to do is the more heat load you have, the faster the process is going to be and the more complete heat acclimatization is going to be. So if you go to a hot environment with no humidity, that's one heat load, if you will. If you go to a hot environment with humidity, that's a different heat load and a different stressor that, that is going to change your rate of acclimatization. Now, how you have to do it is about two to three hours per day of heat plus exercise exposure ideal. That doesn't mean you have to exercise and do a workout for two to three hours. It can actually even be broken up. You could even consider, uh, you know, walking to dinner uh, type of thing or walking for 45 minutes from one place to another. Uh, that also promotes this heat acclimatization response and helps you get to that two to three hours. Now, what about uh, sex differences? It turns out men and women acclimatize to the heat at the same rate. But in general, women tend to depend more on circulatory adaptations. Men depend more on sweating as a mechanism uh, to cool off. And if you're advising clients, always make sure to tell them that training volume and intensity is likely going to need to be cut back during the acclimatization period. Um, I always tell people if they're trying to heat acclimatize, do your easy workouts on the hot days. And if you have a really important hard workout, do that in the most comfortable, best conditions you can, which is usually uh, cool conditions for most uh, act type of activities. 
All right, another key thing towards exercising the heat that help, can help maintain performance, uh, besides being heat acclimatized, is to focus on hydration. So without a doubt, one of the single most important factors for exercising the heat is hydration. In fact, if we were to dehydrate you uh, passively by about 2% of your body weight, you're going to see somewhere between a 3 to 6% uh, decline in actual exercise performance. And that is absolutely massive. So it's a big, big effector. Uh, how do you judge hydration? A couple different ways you can do it. You can actually measure it uh, very accurately by looking at something called urine-specific gravity. And that'll give you a pretty good indication of hydration status. But the other thing, uh, you know, the more... Uh, easy and cheap way to do it is to use what I call the p-test and that is to simply look at the color of your urine and in general the darker your urine the less hydrated you are keep in mind that there are certain vitamins that will change the color of your urine uh, and can skew that very simple <laughs> measurement um, now in terms of hydration um, there's a a concept called gastric emptying rate, which ends up being very important when it comes to hydration and exercise. And the reason why is that when you ingest a fluid, it's first is going to go into your stomach and it's going to sit there for a little bit. And you actually don't absorb very much fluid at all in your stomach. It need, you need to wait until it leaves the stomach, gets into the small intestine, and that's when you're going to start to absorb some of the fluid. Now, how long does it take for the fluid to leave the stomach? Well, it turns out that gastric emptying is slowed whenever the fluid you ingest has additional substances in it besides water. So as an example, water is going to leave your stomach the most quickly. So if you're dehydrated and your goal is to hydrate as quickly as possible, drink plain water. But oftentimes when we're hydrating, we're also trying to get other substances into the body that help with exercise, like carbohydrates or like minerals. And in that case, when you add those things to the water and ingest it, it is going to slow down the rate of gastric emptying. So to give you an example, a 10% glucose solution, which is, you know, about the concentration of a, of a like a Coke or a Pepsi, uh, that's going to cut your gastric emptying rate by 50%. It's going to take twice as long for that beverage to leave your stomach uh, as it would for plain water to leave your stomach. So keep those things in mind. Um, it, it turns out that one of the optimal concentrations for sports drinks, which helps maximize carbohydrate content and mineral content with minimal gastric emptying uh, effects that are on the negative side, Turns out it's around a 7 to 8% uh, concentration, and that just so happens to be what Gatorade is. I think it's 7%. It also makes it to where that's uh, what we call isotonic with most of your body fluids, uh, and that's a good thing. Now, another thing with, uh, with sports drinks that you have to be careful of is timing around ingestion and an exercise bout. And the reason why is as soon as you ingest a beverage that has some sort of carbohydrate in it, you typically are going to see a very uh, quick and robust uh, response in blood glucose. Blood glucose will rise. As a result of that increase in blood glucose, your body is going to secrete insulin. And insulin is important because blood glucose can't, or glucose can't get from the blood 
into the muscle cell to be utilized as a fuel uh, without some help. Uh, it can't just diffuse through the muscle cell wall by itself. It has to go through special channels. And one of the channels uh, is controlled by insulin. So when insulin binds to a receptor on the muscle cell wall, it opens that channel and glucose can go in. Well, it turns out there's another thing that can open that channel, uh, and that's exercise. And if you time it incorrectly, where you have a high amount of insulin in the blood, and you also add exercise on top of that, the two effects are additive. And what happens is you open up too many channels in the cell wall, but glucose rushes from the blood into the muscle cell, which on one hand you think is a good thing, but it makes your blood glucose get very low. And that has negative effects for things like brain function because you don't store any uh, glucose in the brain. It all has to be delivered. Uh, things like that are a problem. And so people oftentimes feel tired or a little weaker um, and exercise performance is impaired. So the question is, how long before? Well, it turns out in most of these studies, they gave the glucose beverage drink 45 minutes before and saw negative outcomes on exercise performance and blood glucose levels. So I always tell people, my advice is, if you're going to drink a carbohydrate beverage, try to drink it an hour, hour and a half before. Or once you get inside of 45 minutes, just drink plain water until you get up to about, you know, 5, 10 minutes or so before exercise or any time during the exercise bout you can drink plain water and it's, or I mean, you can drink the sports drink and it's not going to affect your blood glucose levels uh, in a negative way uh, because you will uh, downregulate that insulin response once you start exercising. All right, we've talked about exercise in the heat. I want to shift and talk just a little bit about exercise in the cold. And it's really not as big of a concern because exercise is thermogenic. When you exercise and do muscular contraction, you're going to produce a lot of heat. And so temperature regulation during exercise in the cold is less of a concern. There are some health hazards, though. Uh, certainly one of them is the effects of wind chill on the body. So we know that um, there is increased convective heat loss when you stand in the wind or when you stand in front of a fan. That air movement past your body, you're going to dump more heat due to convection. And so that can be a problem. Uh, again, I always tell when I advise clients if they're exercising outside in cold weather and it's really windy, try to exercise in a situation where early in the exercise you're going into the wind. Uh, later in exercise you have the wind at your back. Uh, believe it or not, you'll actually get through it without... Um, imagine if you start sweating early in exercise and then at, at the end of exercise you have to do something into the wind. Uh, it really kind of makes you super cold really fast. Um, another health hazards with exercise in the cold certainly is exercise in cold water. We talked about water having a different specific heat, has a higher specific heat than air. So heat loss in water is over 20 times more rapid than heat loss in air. Uh, and so you have to be very, very careful during exercise uh, in cold water. Um, you know, the example that I always give is uh, on the Titanic when people went in the water. It wasn't that they, you know, had problems where they couldn't swim. The issue was that they got hypothermic and died from hypothermia. Uh, another health hazard of exercise in the cold is, cold is the increased risk of having a muscle pull uh, in more power, explosive, strength type events. You got to be careful with, with warm-up. And then the last one I'll discuss is something called bronchospasm. So it turns out 
that when you exercise in cold and dry air, it can cause some individuals to have a bronchospasm or an asthmatic response. And that can be dangerous in individuals who are asthmatic uh, and have their airway closed. So you need to be aware of that if you work with clients who do have exercise-induced asthma to know that they need to have their rescue inhaler with them or you need to avoid those situations altogether. Now, the one thing I didn't talk about is the danger of actually freezing your lungs uh, or damaging your lung tissue during exercise in the cold. Uh, the risk of that is extremely minimal. It has to be unbelievably cold, uh, something like, if I remember right, like minus 50 Fahrenheit uh, before that becomes an actual uh, danger because you actually heat the air up uh, very, very quickly as soon as it comes in your mouth. So by the time it gets into the small airways, it's heated up. You're not going to damage lung tissue uh, as a result. All right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop there, and that gives you environmental physiology for thermoregulation. We're at 25 minutes now. I'll stop there to give it a break. I'll do another podcast on environmental physiology, do altitude separate by itself.